You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. All right, Bracken, I think we need to have an intervention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment, but I'm curious about which topic incited the question. Yeah, I'm going to out you in front of everybody. Uh, I think you got a problem, and it's a it's a tattoo problem, Bracken. I got the tattoo bug. It bit me during quarantine. <laughs> we were starting to record here, and I noticed how big your biceps looked, and then I realized it was just this tattoo you had on there to distract me. Yeah. What's going on with you over there and your tattoos? My sister is home and she and my wife have been planning to get a tattoo together for like four years. Oh. <laughs> we never do it, but they always plan on it. And they decided to order a bunch of t- temporary, like realistic tattoos off Amazon for like 12 bucks. We got an obscene amount of tattoos, like full sleeve stuff, everything. And so we've just been throwing some tats up on our body, testing out different locations. The kids are in on it. Uh, my two-year-old has a giant tiger that covers her entire torso. <laughs> you, you, you let her watch Tiger King. She got uh, inspired. Oh, yeah. She's, she's addicted. Everyone. <laughs> my my uh, five-year-old's got a wolf that wraps from her spine all the way to the front of her rib cage. Oh, wow. We're all tatted up over here. I saw a photo of your, I think it's your youngest, when she was, once you get the, put the tattoo on her, she decided she hated it and was bawling. You know what? We we put it on, we removed the covering, and everyone just just lost their minds because she's she looked so funny because it's a really <laughs> realistic looking tattoo to be on a two-year-old. Yeah. And she's still got that big old round belly of a baby, and it covers the entire thing. It's like a 3D tattoo. So it looked hilarious, and everyone laughed and couldn't stop, and she got really self-conscious and it was late at night she should have been asleep anyway so she couldn't handle it. the next morning though she woke up and said oh i like it now so i don't know where you put that but for you guys listening you should go try to find that photo it's on the internet somewhere bracken's daughter it's hilarious yeah it's either on my instagram or my wife's yeah well i think this is a gateway drug for you into real tattoos and i think it's only a matter of time until all we got left of you is like your eyeballs they're all natural. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a skull and neck tat real soon. You and I are both in the same boat where neither of us have tattoos, correct? Unless you have, have something one. I've never seen. I have one. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you have? No, it's funny. Is um, I have the classic upper thigh tattoo for a runner. It's big. Oh, I've it's like never the, seen you in split shorts. Correct. I used to wear the split shorts all the time. And so I think it was my junior college. We all got uh, Titan heads, um, yeah. which is our school mascot at Oshkosh where I went to college. But here's the funny thing. So if you remember, this is embarrassing. Um, if 50 cent was big at the time, he had come out with like in the club and candy shop. And I refuse had- to believe that he's not still big. <laughs> it's okay. It's fair. Uh, anyways. And so he, him and his posse were the G unit and we at Oshkosh thought we were cool and, uh, and thought we were the O unit. So oh, we had, better, I thought you were going to say D unit for distance runners. Yeah. No, no, no. O unit. <laughs> I so, avoid a D unit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a, uh, I decided to get O unit written underneath my Titan head. So I have a Titan tattoo with O unit on my upper thigh for my whole life. So you're the O unit? 
I'm the O unit. Yeah. Yes, we could are. go. We could go a lot of directions with that. <laughs> I actually came home from, from from getting that tattoo. I got it out in Colorado when I was out there altitude training, and I came home and it, the you, wait, o hold up. You did an altitude stint in college. Yeah, in the summers I would go. Uh, I'd go pick live in a shitty cabin in the mountains. I didn't realize you extended back that far with that routine. That oh yeah, that's awesome. But you're missing the point here. So I came home. My mom saw my tattoo for the first time, and it says "Oh, unit" underneath there. But the letters kind of blended together. I got a cheap one, and she goes, "Kirk." Part of my language. She goes, "Did you get written on your leg?" So it kind of <laughs> it kind of looks like the c word. So it's a real mess, Bracken. Well, I did not see that story going in that direction. Does your do your mom have a, a potty mouth? Is is the c word a part of her vernacular? On like a, no, but a she thought that's what. She thought that's what it said, and she's you know she's no filter. Wow. Yeah, yeah we can. That was a plot twist. Yeah, plot <laughs> twist. All right, let's move on. <laughs> All right, so Q and A, listener supported Q and A. We were overwhelmed with questions that we were tired of answering with our our cell phones on Instagram, yeah. and so we're just going to do an entire podcast of listener submitted questions. I've got a list in front of me. We did it differently this time. Last time we just. You you made a post and people responded to you. This time you made a post, I made a post, and the Running Public's Instagram made a post. So we have three streams of questions. It's going to be a long episode, ladies and gents. So get yourself something something comfortable to wear, or or head out on a long run and let's let's settle in for the long haul. Yeah, you know we got some uh, we got some good questions again. I'm always impressed with the number of questions that come in. And then also some pretty specific questions this round. I think the first time we did this, I think we had some more generalized questions and now we have some specific, at least I have some specific situational things that I think other people are going to benefit from. So um, we're going to see how how this shakes out. All right. So since you are controlling the running public's questions and your own, let's do two of yours, one of mine. Yeah, that's fair. We'll just keep going back and forth like that until we... uh, Till we run dry in one of them. And also just heads up to listeners, just like last time, we haven't really like prepped or previewed these questions. So you're getting off the cuff answers to all of this. Um, that being said, there might be some <laughs> some missteps along the way. You're just gonna have to deal with it. This is this is all in the moment. I have not read the vast majority of these questions. So you're just gonna get a Kirk and I firing away. I'm the same way. It's better to fly off the cuff, isn't it? Yes, it is. True display of knowledge. All right, I'll start with, uh, this is a longer one, but... Um, I re- it's really relevant for what we've been talking about. This is from uh, Joe Corolla 08. Uh, basically, he says he's been an athlete his entire life, got into OCR a couple of years ago, and he wants to know, based on what we've been talking about, he says, how do I know uh, when or what my peak fitness looks like if I've never experienced a peak before? He says, you guys constantly say to peak at right times, but if I have no idea where my peak potential could be, how do I, uh, you know, how do I know if I've never experienced it? That's a really good question. The easiest way to answer that is that you have no idea. Anyone who's telling you, I will get you to your absolute peak fitness, uh, they, they have no 100% way of backing that up because they don't know what your peak fitness is. And honestly, if you have just started running recently, you won't hit your peak fitness for years. But what you can do is follow a training cycle to, the, the, to its pinnacle. Follow it to the end of the road, freshen up, and then that's your, 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 your peak fitness for that moment in time. And then you just rest, rebuild, and you're going to hit a newer high peak higher. And, and you get the new gains. You're, you're early on. You're going to peak a million times before you ever hit your actual peak fitness. But that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good answer. I, um, I'd like to add to that, that half the time, 
I know I've hit my peak fitness in hindsight. Like I go, man, I had a three week block of training or time trials there were or a few races where I strung together, especially like I felt good. I ran effective and fast. I hit new times. And then I kind of dip out of that again. And I'm like, I hit my peak three weeks ago and I, now I know it. So sometimes it's hindsight. And then the other thing I say, um, is if you're hitting times you haven't hit before, you're certainly on your way. If you're time trialing, if you're hitting new markers, um, but just like you mentioned, build a training block, freshen up, take a down week or two, and then hit it hard. And you're probably going to be somewhere near a peak. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I honestly think that this is, this deserves its whole episode. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of stories and things, anecdotes and, and, and different directions I want to take this, but for now, yeah. Um, you may not know until afterwards. And the last thing I'll say is that's why it's important to do test runs of peaking. You don't want to try peaking for the first time for your A race. And that's why Kirk and I have talked. It might be a decent idea to do a, a version of your big build coming up now, mm -hmm. take a little downtime after your peak, and then use what you've learned moving forward so you get it right the next time. Too many times dating back to college, you peak, and two weeks later, when the season's over, suddenly you're feeling like I could just go blast every run right now. And you realized my peak was a little too soon or I didn't hold it long enough. And that's the kind of thing you're going to get by testing it out. That's such a good point. In fact, you know, we all have our own uh, lead up or build into big races that matter. And you want to race a big race at your peak, but I haven't decided which way is the best for me yet. And so I am actually going to play around a little bit here with uh, seeing how my body responds to certain approaches. And now's a great time to do that. It's a good point. Um, I'll go to another question and then I'll let you fire one off. Does that work? Yeah. Um, this one comes from Agilis. Agilis says, hey, this is a good one too. And I got an answer for this one, but she says, hey guys, I'm a listener and I have a question. Uh, last November, I started training for running for the first time using Bracken and Benny's OCR training plan. Okay. All right, the old obstacle dominator plan. Yep, I've made significant improvements but I'm dealing with significant hunger at 3 to 4 a.m. most days. This is after eating dinner and having a snack before bed. Is this common issue for runners? Any thoughts as additional info? Basically, she's lost some weight. So through this process, uh, what do you think? Oh, I want to answer that question with more questions for her. But I would just I'll just throw a blanket statement out there. If you're very hungry at night, the density of your calories throughout the day probably is lacking in some place. That, that's my take on it. That initially for the first week of a new training plan, maybe less calories, you're always hungry, then you adapt to it. If you're not adapting, you're missing something somewhere. Even if you're eating the right number of calories, when you're eating it or where you stack most of them might be in the wrong spot that you're just coming up hungry at the wrong time. So I would say play around with maybe extending some of the density later in your day so that you're not so hungry at night. If the last thing you're eating is something really light, you might need to swap that with the previous meal. But again, it's going to take trial and error. If it's been longer than a week or two of it, then yeah, something's missing. Yeah, I think it's continual, it sounds like. Um, here's the two things that I notice. These are the biggest things uh, when you're waking up hungry at night. Uh, the one uh, glaringly obvious thing is there's probably not enough fat in your diet. A lot of people are fat conscious with what they're eating. You need to eat more fat. You need to eat more fat. You need to eat more fat. So got my point across there. You're probably eating too many carby or too many lean proteins and you're not getting enough fat in your diet. Fat seems to really stick for a long time. And a lot of people, for some reason, still skirt eating enough fat. And I would, I'm just going to 
guess that you're not eating enough. And then the other thing that um, I find with waking up in the middle of the night, and I experience this myself, is people who are anemic, people who are low on their iron, their body is working so hard to recover from efforts, or their body's just continually working in a slightly deprived state. When I was anemic, I'm finally getting feeling better. I was starving in the middle of the night. My sister struggled with anemia her whole life. And when she's low on iron, she has to get up in the middle of the night and eat every night. And that's her sign to get back on her iron and get her numbers up. Um, so one, uh, you potentially could be anemic. I know that's, I, I shouldn't even be saying that, but that's just what experiences showed me. And then two, you're probably not eating enough fat. Those are the two things that I, and now that my, uh, my iron levels are coming back up myself, I was tested very low for iron a month or two ago. I'm not getting up in the middle of the night hungry. So those are great points. They yeah. really are. And you're right. You, uh, I had a, a professor in college say this all the time and it just drove it home. You do not feel sated until you have fat in your diet. You mm -hmm. just don't. And, and you're right. Endurance runners can live off fat. I'm not saying like just cut all the fat off all the meat you can find and eat it all day long. Obviously you have to be smart, but yeah, fat is good for us as endurance athletes. Yep. hundred percent. Um, cool. I think we covered that. Yeah, that was good. And, and good insight on the anemia. We're not trying to be like armchair doctors diagnosing, but all runners should be aware of their iron levels. Mm -hmm. All of us should be. Yep. Okay. Um, let's start with Johnny Luna Lima. I actually reached out to Johnny about this because he asked a question on the first episode and it was a good question. And on this one as well, I just wanted to make sure he wasn't messing with us because it was a good question, but I couldn't tell if he's like asking a good one on purpose to be a jerk or like to be yeah. funny. Cause like Ryan Woods does that, <laughs> he's uh, Ryan oh, yeah. Wood. but uh, he, he was serious. He said, is cross training even useful to runners? That's his question. Uh, yes. You can see why I thought like, is he, is he trolling me? Because the first question he asked is kind of uh, generalized as well. The last, yeah, and, and his response was like, "I already know where I stand on this, but I hear people talk about this a lot, so I thought it'd be good for people to hear." So, thank you, Johnny. Yeah, thank you, Johnny. Uh, Hundred percent cross training is beneficial for runners. For I, I mean, we could come up with three dozen reasons if we had to. Uh, for me, the biggest one and the thing I lead the way with is. Uh, for example, my body isn't necessarily capable of spending as much time on feet as I would like. And so I need to find other ways to continually stoke or build the fire and without taking the pounding running causes. And so for me, I need to fill volume or build volume, uh, combining running plus cross training to reach my peak fitness, um, at least until I build until I'm, I'm ready to run peak volume solely. So for that reason alone, uh, I stand firmly on cross training as I'm in the same boat. Uh, and, and I have two reasons for it. It is great for injury prevention or recovery, and it is great for actual fitness. And I believe that like the injury prevention recovery is obvious. You can get more volume without pounding, but the, uh, the actual fitness, I think there's like a, a paradigm here. Like on one, on one end of it, you have road running or track. And I think that's the least applicable work, um, for cross training where mm -hmm. when you have a one motion, you do endlessly over and over. Yeah, bike riding or rowing or swim running or whatever it is, just going to be less impactful to your performance there. But the at the far end of the, the spectrum is OCR, where you're off-road terrain, you're up and down mountains, you're swimming, you're crawling. Engine matters more than just one specific movement. And so the more you get away from one rote movement, the more cross-training actually can help you on race day more than just keeping you healthy to get there.
And yeah. in the face of all of that, you have examples like Meb Kofleski, who did the elliptigo for like 40 to 60% of his volume at different points in his late career. And he won the Boston Marathon off that. So like, you know, like, who am I to say that it doesn't even translate to road running? Yeah, case in point right there. My God, top top end of this whole this whole sport, and he's cross training to fill volume. And there's so many different specificities that you can get into um, with the cross training, but just know that it is worth your time. Mm-hmm. And 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 you can periodize cross training just like you could run programming. And there's so many modalities you can use. And we we won't get into that today. But yes, do it. It's worth it, hundred percent. Especially if you're injury prone. Look into do some research on the people who have won and gone top five on Mount in Mount Marathon for the last like five years. There's a list of cyclists and Nordic skiers who can run up a mountain as well as any mountain runner on this planet because their engine is massive and their muscles can fire and they're not running volume. They are cycling and skiing volume. It does carry over, especially to our sport. And look at and look at these Strava accounts. I know I reference Strava a heck of a lot on this podcast, but it's such a good tool. Look at the top guys in our sport from Atkins Albin. Let's talk Johnny. They're all they're on the bike multiple times a week, cross training for two, four, six, eight, ten hours a week on the bike on top of their running. And they're the best in the sport. Think it's a coincidence? Probably not. All right, I got another question. Yep. Uh, this comes from Rob Thorson. He's uh, gave me one this this go round. Um, I heard you say during the Hunter. Uh, McIntyre episode that you were taking a cross training. I understand the importance, but I'm interested as to when you choose to do so. Is it scheduled? More of your body telling you? What is it? Now, I know this is directed at me, but why don't you give it a crack? For cross training? Yeah. Why I took a cross training week? Uh, Basically, our bodies can get overstressed. And with the whole concept of peaking, it's, it's kind of a confluence of three factors. Your overall fitness your overall fatigue, and then your overall, um, what would you call it, Kirk? Um, blanket on the term right now. Fitness, fatigue, and and your uh-huh. actual like performance level. Oh, sure. And so as you train harder and harder and harder, your fitness rises way up and your fatigue rises way up. And so your performance level drops a little bit. And peaking is essentially just dropping your fatigue down so that your fitness and your performance level are as high as possible when your fatigue at its lowest point. Mm-hmm. But to get to that point, you have to raise fatigue pretty heavily with you know consistent overloading in your training. And you get to the point where it's just not sustainable and you have to either peak or t- take time off or you peak and then take time off. So it's just a regeneration period. It can be mental, it can be physical, or it can be both. But taking a week off of impact letting your body down to a cellular level, your nervous system, just relax and regenerate and get primed for another big build. Yeah. Yeah. I can't argue with that at all. Uh, the reason I decided he's, he asked why, or why did you decide now to take your cross training week? Um, for me, I wanted an active recovery week cause I didn't feel like the, the workload from my previous training required a full week off of all tr- uh, training. Um, but two things. One, I uh, I struggle with shin issues, shin splints. I've had a number of stress fractures in the in my shins over the years, and that was starting to act up just a hair. And uh, I was also hitting some really peak fast training workout numbers. And I said, you're getting in too good a shape too early. And 
there's no benefit in pushing through a shin that's sore because it's only potentially going to set you back further. So I, I had an injury sort of re, you know, rear its head and that was a sign. And then my fitness was popping, which is also another sign. Um, and then the cross training just helps keep my cardio fitness uh, kind of where I want it. I jumped back into running last week and I felt like I hadn't missed a step except I was super fresh. So it was like the perfect combo. Does that uh, cover the base, you think? I think you put a nice little bow tie on that. I answered the wrong question and you finished it up nicely. I know you didn't answer the wrong question. Um, all right, I guess I got one more question before you get your turn since I got more in front of me. Um, this is from the Isaiah Tucker. He says, how long should my threshold run be and why? Do I increase the length over time? This is your alley, man. Yeah, I love threshold work. And the there are two answers to that. One is that threshold work should be 25 to 40 minutes long, ideally 30 to 40 minutes. And that is based off your you know, uh, your one hour race effort or slightly slower. And the uh, the other answer to that is that threshold work can be any distance long. You look at sprinters and they do threshold intervals of 600 and 800 meters for a total of like two miles of work. And you look at uh, marathoners and sometimes they will do 10 and 12 and 18 mile, what they call tempos. And basically, if you look at it from a peer perspective, you're not going to spend more than 40 minutes in, in a threshold zone. But if you look at it from a race perspective, it makes sense to work hard for a long period of time. But regardless, you start at a distance that you can maintain for your current threshold heart rate or pace. You extend that distance until you reach the cap, and then you reset with a faster pace. Yep. And then you you keep removing through it. So you don't always have to get longer. It's not like when you get to like a 60 minute, now I have to do 70, then 80, then 90. Like, no, you reset and now you do it all faster. And that's all that cycling through through training cycles does is you do the same work again, same progression, but you do it faster or with less effort. Yeah. Yeah. I can't really add a whole lot to that other than um, usually depending on how you're building volume, I you know generally shoot for that 20 minute mark, the first go around and then 30 minute mark the next. And then I probably cap her around 40 minute mark for my during just the way I like to build. And then just like you said, then maybe even bumper back down, try to increase your pace and then restart that process over again at a higher quality. Um, I like that. That's good stuff. That's all. I don't have anything to add. That's all there is to it. Extend the distance, then reset faster. All right, I got a question yep. for you. Uh, we're veering away from training talk here or technical training talk, and now we're talking preferences. OCR Morin, longtime OCR athlete, asks, shoes, your preferences for each distance, road and trail. Oh, but wow, we could really, uh, we could go on. You could go on tangents for this for hours if you had This is to. a day, this is, you talk about gateway drugs, Kirk. This is my <laughs> gateway. Um, wow, are we talking racing, I assume? Let's give training and racing short, medium, long trail and road. So here's, I'm an anomaly this way, Bracken. So I carry three brands of shoes in my closet. Okay. I carry my VJ shoes, which I love. I have Hoka's and I have Ultras. And Hoka's and Ultras are about on the opposite end of the spectrum as they get. And I have models from all of them that I love. Um, so I don't even know if I'm a good person to ask because I like the variation in how my foot strikes the ground. I seem to respond better with very different types of shoes alternating throughout the week. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to simply deflect to you because I know this gets you more <laughs> excited than anything. I want you to answer it. Oh, I'm going to really rein myself in. Um, and I'm actually going to give specifics right now. Currently, my favorite road shoe is the Skechers Razor 3. I can run slow, I can run long, I can run fast, I can run medium, I can do every type of run in it from recovery runs up to interval work. 
it's it's fantastic. Uh, so if I had to pick one road shoe, it would be the Razor Three Hybrid. The the only place it co comes up short is that really long run or really slow pace cushioning will eventually kind of give out on me. And then I have my Hocus for that day. Yeah, and I, I'll uh, throw in my long run. Sorry, I'll just jump in real quick. My my road shoe would be the Hoka Clifton if I had to pick one. Yep, Cl um, Clifton is is mine. Yep. Okay, continue. Sorry. However, when I do real speed work, then I have racing flats on. And it could be Nike Streak. It could be the Skechers um, uh, Gomeb Speed. It could be any. I have so many racing flats, but uh, Adidas Adio. So I have racing flats. And then when I uh, move to the trails, if I'm racing, I basically race in VJs exclusively. Yeah. I used to race Innovate, love Innovate, but they just weren't bulletproof enough for really off-road stuff. So IROC, Extreme, Max, I don't actually care which one for the distance it's just all about the terrain if it's soft and muddy i'll wear the iraq all the way up to a beast if i had to if it's uh hard and and short i'd still wear the extreme i don't care and i could wear the max for a sprint if i wanted to you know i ran that mile mm -hmm. where i did dribbling the basketball i did that uh in the maxes on the track so they can handle any distance vj for off-road racing and then i am pretty much exclusively now hokas for all my um, really long stuff or my easy and recovery runs. Yeah. And I, I like the torrent a lot. I like the, um, Evo speed goat might be my favorite shoe right now in terms of training and long racing. And then I like the challenger or the Nepali ATR, which unfortunately is discontinued. Yeah. I think we're in the same boat on that. Anything under 15 miles or so on the trails I'm racing in any, any one of those VJ shoes. Um, if it were longer than that, I may go to like a more cushioned Hoka just because of the time on feet. If I'm racing for three plus hours, I may want to go to like a, yeah. the torrent or a speed goat or something like that. But other than that, I think we're on the same that page. Evo speed goat I wore in Tahoe for the ultra and I, and I wore for the, uh, a 50 K on the trails and it is light. It's under, it's right about nine ounces maybe a tad under and it can take me hours 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 on my feet yeah the one thing i will add is if you're dealing with really hard rocky terrain where the bottoms of your feet can really get beat up that vj extreme with like the uh the rock plate in there makes a really big difference um for me so i feel much more bulletproof i would say in that extreme on like really hard sharp jagged rocky terrain so if you could only have one trail shoe and one road shoe what would they be for training or racing, though, they're two different... Uh... Nope, you have to have one. You're one unicorn shoe for everything. Oh, I could race in a heavier road shoe or a trail shoe, to be honest. So I would probably pick... I would have to pick the uh, the Clifton for Hoka because it's light enough, but it's still durable enough to, to use every day. And then for the trails, um, I'm going to have to go with the Extreme, the VJ Extreme. It's just so well-rounded. What about you? Uh, for the road, I would take that Skecher Razor 3 because okay. I could I could run a mile through a marathon in that thing. And for trail, oh, I'd be hard-pressed. Either the VJ Max mm. or um, or a Hoka, either the Challenger or the uh, Evo Speedgoat. Yeah, and the Speedgoat's not a terribly light shoe, but it, uh, it feels The like Evo version the is Evo much version. lighter than the regular. But the I, I've run a Spartan Sprint in the on a day two when I was beat up in the Challenger ATR. Sure. It's like a nine-pound shoe, yeah. I'll do uh, one more in a row here just because I do have a little more than I thought. Uh, sure. How much should an elite Spartan racer be able to squat, deadlift, and press? Uh, <laughs> um, is this coming from a male or a female? 
This is the Isaiah Tucker again. Oh, the Isaiah Tucker. All right. Yeah. Um, he spread his questions out evenly between yes, you he and did. I. Equal uh, opportunity employer. All that matters, guys, is your strength to weight ratio, in my opinion. Um, and if you're strong enough to flip the tire, then nothing else. That's the only thing that you'd even need to take into consideration with this. Otherwise, it's just how well can you handle your own body weight? Um, I can tell you that there are guys a lot weaker than I am in this sport that get through things just as fast or faster than me. And it has nothing to do with how much they can squat or deadlift. I don't even want to give you numbers. I really don't because I don't think it's relevant. I think how you handle your own body weight um, is so much more important than anything. Um, I think whatever weight you need to feel good about uh, is all that all that matters. I, I wish I could entertain that more, but I just don't think I can do it and feel good about it. No, I don't like putting numbers on things, especially for lifting up. You need to be able to hit this. The only number that matters is, is can you do as much or more at that weight, at that body weight than you could prior? So mm -hmm. if you're at 160 pounds right now, can you deadlift what you used to be able to in the past during training cycles, deadlift and squat at 160? If you hit that or higher, you are better. If you hit less than you might have regressed. And that's the only number that matters is mm -hmm. compared to that exact same body weight at the same training volume, are you doing as much or more? Yeah, I agree with that. And even something guys like the tire flip for the men, it's a, the women have it a little easier because it's just not the same equivalent, but 400 pound tire guys, you're probably lifting up 200 pounds of that because you're not picking it up all the way off the ground. You're tipping it over. So you're lifting about maybe roughly half, maybe a little more than half that weight to get it off the ground. Um, it's not like you need to be able to deadlift 400 pounds to flip the tire. You need to be able to pick up significantly less than that. It has way more to do with your finger and forearm strength just as much as getting underneath and getting secure than it does with how much your lower back and glutes and hamstrings can handle. So so yeah. again, I, I'm skirting it, but for a reason. John Albin does not deadlift, right? Does not squat. He's never failed a tire. Uh, VJ Jones back before he started doing as much strength work. He's still lean. He, he hashtags lean body sorcery on his boat. Yeah, 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 yeah. He is the one of the fastest tire flippers in the entire sport and probably is in the middle of the pack in terms of what if we, everyone in the world had to, in our sport, had to deadlift. It, it's, it's more about using your force appropriately than having a massive amount of force. So we talk about squat and deadlift as much for health and fitness reasons as we talk about for race performance. Yeah. And of course it's important to be strong and those all translate it, but we can't put numbers to it for individuals. I don't think. Um, all right. This next question is from Ryan D Lister. Uh, this is going to be a tough one to answer, but how do I improve hip and ankle mobility? Can't squat worth crap. <laughs> what do you got there for D Lister? I would say you either find a coach or you um, find an app or a program to follow. That's, that's one of those things where when you have something to watch, you just can do it better. And then that's when you walk, you reach out to Cruise Elite or you sign up for, um, what is it, MobWad or Wadwell, one of those apps where you have yeah, a yeah. daily mobility app. Ramwad. Um, Ramwad, there we go. Yeah. Um, and MobWad. Mob whatever. <laughs> okay. Keep going. Um, or, or you find a coach who specializes in that or or start with YouTube videos. But I, I don't think you, you mess around with that. You just go to the source, learn what you need to learn, and then you can start taking over your own training after that point. But you find an expert. Um, yeah, I see can't squat worth crap. And I think maybe you're putting too much weight on your back for starters. 
uh, and you can't do the proper range because you're you're overloading what you're ready for. I also think that um, it's the hips are part of a, the chain on your body, and if your if your back is tight and your glutes are tight and your hamstrings are tight and your hip flexors are tight, they're all related. You probably are maybe missing the mark on your on your flexibility. Uh, just like you're stretching and maybe some of your rolling, just it's all related. So I think if you loosen up some of the other parts of your rear chain, that those hips might open up for you as well. Also messing with your squat stance. I, I don't encourage everybody to do this, but playing around with the direction your toes are pointed. A lot of people get bound up in the hip flexors. If you turn your toes out a little bit into more of a sumo position, sometimes that opens things up completely for people. I don't know what you're buying. I'm out a few are. degrees with my toes when I squat. Yeah. Um, so that's just a, I mean, I'm giving you advice I probably shouldn't right now, but I guess that's what we do on this podcast. So I'll give you something to do, but I think Bracken's probably the most right with get some professional help or fo follow some sort of app that can guide you through it. Um, next question, JK Mahan 14. All it says is this fatigue masking fitness. What's too much and what's putting in quality volume. How do you like decide on that balance oh, my overriding mantra with training is do as much as you want of whatever you want until it negatively impacts your quality days if you cannot get through your big workouts of the week more than like two or three in a row probably i would i would even cap it low i would cap it at two in a row if you if you if you fail out or or bomb two quality workouts in a row you need to very seriously look into whether you're too fatigued yeah I keep it really simple with that. If I can't hit my big quality days, then I have too much of something else in my program and that something might be fatigue. That's exactly right. If I'm hitting one once in a while, you hit a quality workout where you're like, shoot, I just don't have it today. Like, man, this is rough. But if you start to string two or three of those together when you're planning a hard day and it's like either mentally or physically, you're not checked in and you just can't, your body's not responding like you want. That's how you know it's too much. And then you should be taking a big deload week the following week. Let that all sink in, all that hard work uh, soak up. And this is why Kirk and I preach about a training log, because at that time you can immediately take a look back and try to figure out what caused this. And then if this is a reoccurring issue, maybe you're not missing two or three in a row, but every third is terrible or every other is, is just not working out right. You can start adjusting little pieces in your training and look back over time and see which ingredient mixture makes you feel great, makes you feel like you're towing the line and it makes you tip over. Yeah, it's great. You're up. I am up. Ways to, oh, this is a good one. Fiad Fit says, ways to increase stride length without overstriding. This is huge. Everyone always talks about um, if you just lengthen your stride three inches and you do that stride 10,000 times over the course of a race, think how much quicker you get to the finish line. And that's great on paper. But if you're overstriding or your cadence drops, you're screwed. So that's a really intelligent question. Kirk, how do you increase your stride length the correct way without overstriding or slowing your cadence down? Well, that is uh, that's also a very tough question to answer. To be honest with you, um, for here I'm gonna I'm gonna I can take the easy way out and say if you run faster, your stride length is gonna increase yep. with the same cadence. Okay, so so the first way to increase your stride length is to run faster. I know that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, oh, how do you increase your stride length? I don't have a good answer for that, Brack, and I don't have something that really comes to mind. Um, I'm going to say right off the bat, first decide if you should or not. Yeah. It, stride length is like max heart rate or body temperature. Everyone's is going to be different. So decide if you actually need to or not. And then if you do need to, uh, Ryan Kempson talked about some pretty easy things. You know, you get that anterior pelvis tilt, 
And now you have a little bit more range of motion and your stride can naturally extend further out in front without overreaching and landing with your heels jamming into the ground. So a little bit of hip mobility, a little bit of pelvis, uh, pelvic tilt, and that can help. But the big thing is you can't sacrifice turnover for that. So at that point, you have to increase your power off the ground. And it's a, just the whole kinetic chain of events there that happens. Yeah. So first, before you go down that road, decide if you really need to. Yeah, it's just, it's increasing stride. Every time I hear like, I need to increase my stride length. It's such like an over glorified thing to have this long, beautiful flowing stride because most people think that's what it takes to run fast and they couldn't be more wrong. It takes high cadence, quick turnover. You see somebody bounding down the sidewalk when I'm out driving my car and I see somebody running and and somebody be like, wow, they look like such a runner and they're going so on. I say, God, they're so damn inefficient and they're yeah. wasting so much energy. Um, so I just think the stride length is so over over glorified. I will say two things. The first is that this is why I cannot wait for a really functional version of a power meter to come into the running world. Mm -hmm. Cycling has it figured out and running needs it next. And I know some are out there, some are being developed, but if you could look at power numbers on every stride, you would see real quickly what length your stride needs to be. Second is that the, the career trajectory of most really good runners their stride tends to compact a little bit as they become better and more efficient. They don't get longer. You start long and loopy and rangy and bouncy, and you get mm -hmm. more compact and efficient over the years, not longer. So I'm not trying to not answer your question, but I would steer you away from thinking I need to lengthen my stride to do I need to. Yep. And I think the quickest way to combat that is what you said earlier, and we can wrap this up, is uh is just work on that pelvic pelvic tilt. Make sure you're not your hips aren't tucked under you too much. Keep those hips forward. Run tall. You're gonna get a little better knee drive, a little more range of motion simply by just not letting your butt stick out when you're running. Yeah. Run vert a little more vertically would be yeah. benefit. If you're landing with your feet mostly underneath your center of gravity, you're not overstriding. Yep. Um, all right. So I don't know how much we need to address this. This is from uh, Jess B Fitness. It says how to get faster at flat running from running inclines. It's almost like she answered the question in her question. Yeah. Yeah. You, if you work intensities and speeds uphill, your flat ground speed will progress. Maybe not at the same rate as the uphill, but it will increase. And if you're really, really thinking that you need some actual flat work, do a starter or a finisher to your workouts. Finish with four by 200 fast at the end of your workout or start with something like that and your flat speed's going to be just fine. But we preach it all the time. Kirk and I both run fast miles off of hill training blocks. Yeah. Do I, I believe uh, Jess B Fitness, I think she had sent us some messages. She had just gotten a Nordic track incline trainer and she was curious about it. Mm -hmm. um, you can take any flat workout and translate it to incline. And what that really does is that incline work just creates a little more power or pop in your step. Like once you hit the flats, like it just generates just maybe like a little more power on when you talk about a power meter for runners. Like I would say one way to increase that is to do your hill running. And then once you run, uh, you just become a little more efficient running flat too. That's it. So, um, put your time in, whether you're doing steady runs, or you're doing interval work, uh, you'll see the benefit from that. Running watch technology, how to use it for your training. I just got the Sunto Spartan need to learn. That's from fortitude, functional fitness. Um, oh, that is a whole rabbit hole. You can you can have their entire books written about how to use your watch technology. Here is what I would say. The way I like to use my watch technology is to take 
things off my mind during workouts. I will use the workout program to actually program in my intervals. So all I do is listen to the beeps and I have a coach right there. I'll set my heart rate zones. I'll set my speed zones that I'm trying to hit and I will just follow the watch so that I'm not screwing up workouts on my own. You can get into um, letting it navigate you. You can get into all these other things, but sometimes too much data is simply too much data. So <laughs> I, I, I don't use a super high-tech watch because I need heart rate, I need cadence, I need distance, I need vertical gain, and that's about it. Yeah, I'm, I've used the gadgets far less than most on mine as well. I think the basics of um, data is probably all you really need. I think the most common thing I see on my athletes' logs are like, oh, had a watch malf had a watch technicality, and they screwed up an interval split, or they screwed up their rest, or I did my watch, I pressed the wrong button, and I see that stuff every single freaking week on people's logs. Kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. You can the one nice thing is you can on the back end program the workouts ahead of time so that that doesn't happen, and I see that all the freaking time with people. Or their their three by a mile is somehow five different segments on Strava. At work, I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. How did you do this? So, anyways, pre-programming, I think, is probably the best function. And then, yeah, um, and just pairing it with whatever heart rate monitor you have, just so that they just you can just see it. That's that's all I really seem to use mine for. Yep, I program every quality day into my watch. Even if I don't save that run, I use it as my coach right there. So I can't screw up. We all get race dumb. We all get oxygen deprived, and we stop thinking well. I use my watch as my backup system. And then the other thing I do is I love that with the newer watches, you can program multiple pages on there with whatever data you want. So for all of my easy and recovery runs, I have a data screen where I see time, I see heart rate, and I see cadence. And that is it. So I don't have to look at distance, but I can see, am I letting my stride sag or am I keeping my cadence up? And how's my heart rate doing compared to that cadence? And that's it. Where on my quality days, I have pace, I have lap distance, lap pace, average pace throughout the, you know, I have a whole bunch of different things, but I have a different data page for every type of workout I'm doing. So I see what matters, the things that I do want to focus on, and I'm not distracted by things that don't matter on that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Those are all good points. I, two quick side notes on this one. Um, you should update your GPS watch. Like when it needs a software update or the technology has been updated, sometimes they're going to ping a little off with the GPS. Um, update those often, plug them into your computer, do the software updates. Those help a ton if your watch starts acting funky. And then the other thing that was huge for me is on the back end in your settings, uh, basically your watch will come sometimes preset with either smart mode or so, which that means is the watch will ping every like five to 10 seconds. And when you're running trails, um, it cuts the tangents. And so your data won't be accurate. So you have to go in the back end and change it to ping every one second. Um, you can do that and you're going to get a much more accurate reading, especially if you're a trail runner. I don't know if you've changed that on your watch Bracken, but a oh, lot yeah. of times, yeah, a lot of times they come uh, preset to smart mode and that's great if you're road running and running straight lines a lot. But as soon as you start, like, for example, if you went to the track and ran around a track on smart mode, it'll show you in about 0.23 miles when you've really gone 0.25 because it's cutting small tangents on the curves. So go on the back end and look for it to ping every one second that will make it more accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you do have questions about really, really using your smartwatch, you got to find someone that you follow on social media that really uses theirs or go to like DC Rainmaker, his website and read up on it. But Kirk and I don't live out in the mountains where we're doing a lot of navigating with our watch or things like that. So we just don't use that. Yep. Um, Mick Fit. 
Oh, Mikhail. Mikhail Girillo, good buddy of ours. Uh, it's a good question. A lot of people have this question. Um, I think he just merely assumes this needs to be addressed. Yeah, he's a coach. He's a high-level athlete. He thinks like a, like someone who thinks for the people. And one of the more innovative guys with the strength workouts, too. The guy comes up with really cool workouts, and I like that functional yeah. stuff. Um, oh, this is simple. It says upper slash lower body separating days for weight training versus all together. Should you split them up or should you mash them all together? Uh, my answer is yes. <laughs> I've done both. I truly don't have a preference. I, I see benefits to keeping them apart. When I was training for high rocks, I kept them apart so I could really lift heavy because I was trying to become the most powerful person I could become. When I'm training more for OCR, then I don't mind going into lifts with a little bit of fatigue, upper versus lower body, because that's sport specific to me. So it comes down to which kind of race I'm prepping for, what makes me happy at that time. Can I combine two lifting days into one and have more time for running? And uh, how much time I have available to me? Yeah. Uh, either is not a bad option and both can be effective. Um, I would say the biggest uh, indicator of what you should do there is time. If you can, if you only have a half hour attention span for a workout or that's all you can fit into your day, going into a split where you only do lower one day and then only do upper the next day, um, time is more of a factor in my opinion. I don't think one takes away from the other. So, um, for me, if I have a lot of time, sometimes I'll throw both in there. And if I don't, then I'll say, Hey, I'm going to whack the lower body today. And sometimes it can take 20, 30 minutes. And then that way I can squeeze in my 20, 30 tomorrow for an upper, uh, in two days I've worked out for over an hour in strength wise, but I split them up because that's what my schedule allowed. So a lot of times I think time. Yeah. To be honest. Our sport is so multidimensional that you don't have to have the like most specifically effective power lifting day because our sport doesn't test that. It tests overall power output and you can do that in a compromise, slightly compromised state. Yeah. I will say that one day a week, I'm always doing combination exercises, thrusters, clean to press, stuff that is engaging both my arms and legs, very big power output movements. I think those are very functional to do. So I wouldn't shy away from combination movements because they're super important. I mean, thrusters, I live and die by those babies. You put some heavy load on you and hit thrusters. It's hard to, uh, hard to argue with the gains those, those give you. So I guess my cheating answer is that when I'm in my most sustainable lift throughout like my, what, what, what I call my third stage of training before peaking, I do both. I have an upper body, a lower body and a combo day. Yeah. That's like, that's how I do my days right now. So we're on the same page there. Let's see here. Long runs for ultra prep. How long? Distance versus time. Heart rate zones. How often? So many questions. <laughs> they <laughs> they included so many questions in their question. All right. First of all, how long should your long run be for ultra prep? Well, are we assuming this is like a 31 point yard mile ultra 50K? What are we looking at here? And I think above. you just answered the first question. It depends on what kind of race you're prepping for. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I would say, you know, if you go to like the science behind it, I keep reading and hearing, and I don't know the specifics, but people are saying like, if you're doing long runs longer than three hours on a regular basis, like the, the, a lot of times the, the benefit to your physiology can really drop off or even not really be super beneficial beyond that. I do know that a, a technique that I very much approve of, and I have two of my athletes on this program right now is back-to-back -back long runs. They'll hit two or three hours on Saturday, uh, maybe some quality stuff in there. And then on Sunday, I'll say, Hey, go ahead. Another two hours on feet combined. They're getting five to six hours. That's how long they're going to be on their feet for an ultra. Uh, but they have some time to recover in between. That's probably the smartest and safest approach as far as injury prevention. So I like to do the split long runs. Um, 
I don't know if you need to be going much longer than three hours at a crack. You can if it if it excites you, but I don't. I guess that's my general philosophy. I'm not an ultra master though, you yeah. know. So so I don't know. What do you think on that? Yeah, I, I agree. There there are examples. Uh, Camille Heron, for example, does not really train longer than 20 miles, as far as I know. And she is the world record holder for 24 hours um, for women and consistently finishes ahead of most men in her races. And she doesn't train much longer than 20 miles on any one given run. And so she proves it can be done with volume of training rather than volume of day. So my take is everyone that's running distance, distance, you know, racing longer than 13 to 15 miles should be super comfortable often in their schedule doing two to three hours. Two to three mm -hmm. hours is a great amount of time to spend on feet for a long run. And then every two weeks, probably two to three back-to-back -back days. And then once every four to five, maybe six, a real long day. That real long day, meaning like that four to six, eight hour range, depending on what you're prepping for. You don't need it in there a lot, but you need it so that you know how your body reacts to stay mentally tough more than anything. And then just gear test days. But I think most of it can be done with two to three hour runs with specific race prep days, the same way you would for a short race where you don't do race sims very often, but you do it to stay sharp and stay ready. Yeah, I think the biggest thing with those really long efforts, and I agree, maybe once a month, once every six weeks, going longer if you do. And it's more for like gear testing. How do I blister in these shoes? Do I need to change my socks every two hours? Do I need to, what my fueling strategies are? It's almost, it's not even for your fitness. It's just for your know-how. Yeah. In my, and from what I understand. So, um, but yeah, you're not looking to put a high heart rate out for like three to six hours. You got to keep that in check on those long efforts. That's a surefire way to really smoke your body and, and crash pretty quick. Yeah, we talk about math running. I try to stay at math, my high end aerobic on my long runs. Um, but I do like to do workouts. I like to do the last third hard on certain days or do some threshold intervals throughout there. Uh, long hill workout days, that kind of stuff. But the big question I like out of this one is distance or time for judging your long runs. Yeah. That's a good, are you asking me this? I am. I guess I was stating something in a questioning yeah. manner. <laughs> Distance or time for long runs? Uh, time yeah. uh, for me. Yeah. Time. It, there's so many other factors, technical terrain for, um, I'm always looking at time. Now I will say like this weekend, I wanted to go two hours. Um, and my watch was at like, uh, 16.1 miles at two hours. And my OCD is like, nope, going to 17. So I guess I did a little of both, yeah. but, uh, time. Yeah, I'd say you? the less smooth the terrain you're prepping for, the more time matters. If I'm a marathon runner, I am doing most of my runs based off mileage on the terrain I'm going to be using. However, as a trail, um, mostly trail athlete, I do both. I do probably half to two thirds of my long runs based on time and the other half to one third is based on distance. And I mm -hmm. like to do the time aerobically in the distance ones as workouts so that I know yeah. I have both ends of the spectrum. I know that I can be on feet for the amount of time that I need to. And I can also crack the whip and cover the distance fast that I'm going to be tested on. Uh, I don't have anything else to add to that. You got anything you want to no. toss in there? Um, no, there's so much more, but maybe that's an episode of itself, the long run. Um, yeah, that's true. Actually, we could dive into a lot of things with that. Um, next question is from my girlfriend, Jess LP. Uh, and, and you know, this is such if a she wants question. to talk to me. She can just call Kirk. <laughs> she doesn't have you know, to reach out through the podcast. She's downstairs. Uh, I think eavesdropping right now. Uh, yeah. Working on her computer. Um, I thought this was like a silly, simple question. 
And I wasn't even going to answer it. And then I thought, you know what? This is actually a really good question. So <laughs> you realized uh, I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. <laughs> I, yeah, I realized I'd be in trouble if I didn't ask. Um, and, and a lot of people have this question. It's simple. It says, how should I determine how many miles a week I should be hitting? And it's like an age old. I mean, there's so many layers to that simple question. Can I start by saying Jess needs to listen to our podcast? On the she last does. Q&A, we answered this question, Jess. She does listen. She does listen. I okay. think she just thinks she thinks no, she sees right. that question a lot. And so I think I think it's like you could start in so many directions with that one. But why don't you take a stab at it? Uh, I'm going to give the same answer I gave last time because we obviously have a different audience each time we do an episode. So the first is that you can work backwards. I know that my my race distance requires me to be able to do this. And then you just schedule yourself backwards from that. Like if I need to be able to race 10 miles, then eventually mm -hmm. 10 miles needs to be easy. Let's start at six now per day on average and build up to that. Or yep. you can start with what you currently have. I know I can run 30 miles per week comfortably right now. And then you just start increasing as your body tells you. But either way, um, I'm, a, I'm in the, the camp that says start with what you know you can do and progress safely rather than take a big chunk out before you know. After you've run for a couple of years, you can take some big leaps from time to time. Like I, I can come mm -hmm. off an off season and jump from 40 to 60 miles in one week because mm -hmm. I have that in my my history. But when you're before you're at that, you need to start at 38 and then go to 42 and then 46 and then 50 and then down for several weeks. You know, that's that's yeah. my rambling answer. No, that's a good answer. I just think that a lot of times you hear like, even in the commentating on like a Spartan race or something, oh, this is a low mileage athlete, but they make it work or this, he's a true runner and he runs a hundred miles a week. So I think it is very confusing. And then you have somebody sitting there saying like, what do I need? Um, and your answer actually really did cover that. Like start with what you know you can do and stay healthy and also stay like have vigor for your training and then ramp it up in a very safe manner. Never ramp up more than two, three weeks in a row before you go back down to a, a level of training you've done in the past and then repeat that cycle. Um, and you'll find your tolerance level. Either you're going to feel fatigued every day or an injury is going to start popping up. Um, but it's totally start where you're comfortable, build smart and take a deload week every two to three weeks as yeah. you build. And this is where we start combining concepts that we've already talked about on today's episode. This is where cross training and long runs come in because you have to be able to hit your long run to get to a long race. But you might not mm -hmm. be able to, let's say you have to do 16 to 18 mile long runs, but you can only run 30 miles a week. That's, that's bad on paper. But if you support your three to four to six miles all your other days with additional biking or hiking or rowing, now you fill out your week. And then over time, the percentage of running to cross training starts to come closer and closer together until running supersedes your cross training. And also the long run, if you focus on time rather than distance at first, you can kind of mitigate some of the, the big damage you take, but you start combining concepts together to round out your volume with your training approach. Yep. Yeah. Great. Yep. Yeah. Great. Moving on. Great. Well, we got some questions. We, I mean, I'm fine making this a longer one, but uh, we still got a number of them. To get oh, to, we so. do. Yep. And this lead, the volume approach kind of leads to the next question. Rohan, Rohan Barr, how many years of dedicated training to reach an elite level? I get this question a lot. How long is it going to take me until I can do this? Or I just ran this time. How many years until I can do this? <laughs> <laughs> can of worms. It is a can of worms. I have a depressing take on it. 
and a regular take, and I'll get to those after yours. (laughs) I know your depressing take is, you know, talent doesn't hide, and you're going to know pretty quick if you got something special or not. That's right. Studs are studs. You know them as a freshman in high school who've never run before. You see them as a 30-year-old who comes out from a different sport and dominates. Talent doesn't hide. Yeah. I will say, you know, if you look at a young person's progression, one, they're developing, so that's also that clouds things a little bit, but... I would say you say huge, you see really, really big jumps in somebody's fitness if they're training seriously from year one to two already, first of all. Year one, they're going to have your your growing pains of beginning a program uh, and all that. But like year one of full training to by the end of a year two of full training, you're going to start to have an idea what your real potential is. I hate to say it. You're going to know by that two-year mark, like, okay, I got something special or like, now I'm starting to dial in my scope of where my potential is. You see it. A freshman comes in in high school and a freshman runs pretty well their freshman year, but they really pop by the end of their sophomore or beginning of junior year. Again, developing is something that is happening. But I also see it with athletes I coach. Um, if you're starting from scratch, you're not going to find out in that first year. But by the end of year two, you should have a pretty good idea what your potential is. I hate to say it. Yeah. Yeah, you really should. And and there's this progression where you have this steep increase in your first year or two and then you level off and then it takes a while but then the cumulative effect of years and months and years and months combines to suddenly you have a long-term big jump and so that's the that's the positive (laughs) takeaway for everyone is that you get your second big progression just with consistency but the real positive takeaway is that for everyone out there who was the early on identified stud there's their counterpart who was a late bloomer Mm-hmm. Um, or, or just a steady progressor progressor. There's, uh, every year in the Olympic trials, there's a story. And there was a couple this year where some guy didn't break 10 minutes for the two mile in high school and didn't break 15 minutes for a 5k in college and just ran at the Olympic trials where they just had to find their training style and find their events and just keep plugging away. And finally they just broke through after years and years of progression. And so while talent doesn't hide most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes you really have to work to unearth it. And uh, an example is a buddy of mine. We're going to have him on the show eventually. Uh, ran at the same school as you, John DeWitt. John mm-hmm. DeWitt in the two mile in high school kept a certain pace. It was I, I don't remember what he kept, but let, let's say it was 445 per mile for a two mile. By the time he graduated college, he was holding that or like two years into college, he was holding that for a 5k. By the time he graduated, he was holding it for a 10k. And then eventually Mm -hmm. now he almost has that first half marathon pace. Now that took 10, 12 years to take it from a two mile race to extend that up to a 10 to 13 mile race, but he did it. He was never a stud. He wasn't a state champ. He was never a national champ, but he was all American. And now he's racing at Olympic trials uh, for two straight Olympic cycles. So talent doesn't lie, but it can take a while to unearth it sometimes. So there is no time frame. It might take you your first year. Hunter McIntyre wasn't a racer, came into the sport, was top five in the world from the jump. Other yeah. people, uh, Johnny Luna Lima, it took him five years in the sport to make his first podium. And I believe that first podium was a win at a national series race. Like it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't get more tip top than that other than a world championship. But uh, the previous year at Tahoe, I think he took like 30th. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm 36, I'm about to be 37. I have been endurance training since uh, eighth grade, since I was like 14 years old. Okay, I'm going on like 22 years of this. And I can confidently tell you that at 36 years of age, I was the best mountain runner I've ever been. I've improved in some capacity, still in aspects of my life 22 years later. So it is like, you can't always get better. I have more endurance now than I did when I was, you could do shorter, faster stuff. You can get better over time. 
we're not saying you can't, I'm not saying you can't, but uh, those increments are going to be smaller in college. I mean, I trained an entire year without injury to go from 356 in the 1500 to 354. I took a second and a half off and I trained for 365 days mm-hmm. for a second and a half. But those add up over years and years, don't they, Bracken? They do. And the higher up you get in the sport, the more incremental increases matter. Early on, it might take you 30 seconds to catch the next person in a race. Later on, it might take you three seconds. At the end of, mm-hmm. at the end of your career, three-tenths might be a massive improvement. And that might take you from one level to the next. So the higher you go, the more little things matter. And that's when all doing everything right in your training starts mattering. After you get all those easy gains early on, your progression starts. Yep, it's true. Um, next question is from an athlete of mine, uh, Tomas Faria. Thomas Faria of 95. He says, and I have a quick answer to this, core slash ab work for endurance athletes. All you, take it away. My philosophy on this is that people lay on the floor and do a million crunches. And I think that's the stupidest thing you could ever possibly do. Like if you want to look like Jane Fonda, that's fine, but that's not functional. Okay. You should train your core. Like you should train anything else, pull up squats, deadlifts, find heavy movements that are difficult to perform where you can't do more than 10, 15 of them before you fail. Okay. Weighted sit-ups, weighted front plank holds, uh, weighted lying leg raises, toes to bar, low rep counts. This is a powerful part of your body. Heavy cable twists, uh, reverse wood chops, heavy, go heavy. Treat it like any other part of your muscle. If you're laying on the ground doing core for 10 minutes, you are missing the mark, man. That's all I have to say about that. I'm very pa- I'm very passionate about that because people uh, like will hit five by fives for their squats and they'll do this and then they'll go lay on the floor and do 300 ab exercises like that's like reps it's not it's not translating treat your core like anything else uh heavy is better than than light and low rep find exercises that really challenge you i'm staying off the tracks you got this one (laughs) all right you're next that's it okay uh let's see here training for elevation races in flatland areas this is an entire episode so i'm just going to give you bullet points treadmill uphill on that You can also build blocks to jack your treadmill up higher. Stair work, parking garages, sled push and pull, tire push and pull, weighted lunges. Those are my five bullet points. We'll get into a whole episode on it. That's that's one that uh, we need to spend some time on coming up. I think that's something that's worth an hour of our time, to be honest, alone. I agree. Um, The one thing I will say Flatlanders really miss the mark on uh, before we move on is they do not do enough eccentric or downhill running. And that's going to root you no matter how much uphill work you do. If you're not practicing those descents, that can ruin your race no matter how good you are. So even if you have a small local hill or something or doing some eccentric gym movements, which we'll talk about, I guess, in the episode when we do it, um, you got to practice the downhills because sure, you can run uphill all you want. But once you run downhill in a race and try to run back up again, you're going to be the completely smoked. So uh, finding ways to run downhill, even if you live somewhere flat, go somewhere where you can get some hard downhill work in. Um, that's what I think. That's perfect. Yeah. That's and it. we do need an episode. We will do that within, I'd say the next month for sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, I got one. Uh, and I got a simple answer for this one too. This is from single track Scott. He asked three questions. I'm going to answer two of them. Um, any advice on how I can raise my cadence? Uh, my easiest advice, and I can't give you any more advice than this, is to download a metronome app on your phone and put on your headphones and set it to between 170, ideally 180 beats per minute. Have your feet hit the ground. I mean, it's 
kind of nuts to run with a beep in your ear. That's all you're going to hear. The quickest way to learn it is to do it. And you have to do it literally for every run. For mm-hmm. No matter if you're going hard or easy, especially on your easy runs, working on cadence is tough. Um, download a metronome app, set it to 180 and do it and do it for at least two weeks. Um, I don't know. You got anything to add to that? Uh, not really. I'm working on it right now. I'm coming off of surgery and my stride is slow and sluggish. <laughs> and I think the easiest way to do it is on a treadmill because that shows you that you can run the exact same pace with a long looping stride or a short choppy stride or something in between. So yeah. you can practice it without getting all out of whack. But yeah, um, either metronome or just set your watch for cadence. Um, if you're going outside, that's, that's what I've been doing lately. And just, I watch it. I watch it the whole time. And then I try to not watch it and guess what I'm at and then look down and I try to feel the difference so that eventually I won't need that metronome. Mm, have you used the metronome before? A little bit. Um, I've, I'm right now, my work is to get myself to 170 or above on my easy days. Okay. That, and that's high cadence. That really is. That's I'm naturally 160 to 165 on my easy runs right now. So it's work to be like 169 to 171, but that's, that's, imp- it's like, what deadlift should I have uh, better than you used to? And that's what my cadence needs to be. It needs to be better than it used to be. Yeah. I'll tell you, if I do not have a metronome playing, I don't do it much anymore, but I will be way slower than I need to be. So that's how I do it. Um, Bracken, this next question is directed right at you. Yeah. This is your, this is your, uh, this is your money question here. Okay. Single track, Scott, his second question, any drills or exercises to help find your glutes or to see how hard you let's try to keep it short, but what do you got? Oh, I like, uh, running or power hiking uphill with your hands on your glutes. If feel you can much. feel them <laughs> contracting, you're using them. Also, um, weighted hip thrusts, like bridge, uh, bridge, bridge work, that kind of thing, where you're, you're, you have to do it. There's no other way to do it but that. I would say start with two things like that, and um, and and for me, a really good one is upstair work because I can walk or power hike up the stairs and think the whole time about having my. <laughs> that anterior tilt in my pelvis and having my glutes pushing down into the ground. Mm, you get to cop a feel along the way. Isn't it great? It is getting better. At first <laughs> it was depressing. I noticed that glutes, people tend to, when they fatigue, especially or when they're climbing, they tend to get it sometimes too much of a forward lean. If you look at people like a Luna Lima or an Atkins or even like an Ian Hosick run uphill, they run pretty upright uphill. They're not. John Albin's another example. John Albin. And so what happens if you let yourself lean too far forward, your rear chain takes over your low back, your hamstrings, and your glutes sometimes get a little bit overshadowed by the rest. I will tell you that if you can keep your hips under you and you can stay upright more, whether you're flat running, going upstairs or running uphill, that will help you use your hips and glutes more. As soon as you start letting yourself fall forward or lean forward, you're going to lose a bit of that power and uh, emphasis into the glutes. Yep. Nailed it. I have nothing to add. Cool. Cool. Other than a question, Ah. tapering, I always screw this up. We already talked about tapering um, a little bit, but that's an episode of itself. Um, You're not going to get it any better with a 30-second answer, and so you need a full episode for it. So I'm sorry. Once we know racing is going to be a little closer, we're going to – I've had a number of taper questions. We're going to dive into that hard. Just be patient with that one. Here's one we can gloss over right now and give you something useful because now is the time to start working on this on your quality days. What does your warm-up consist of for a 5K, 10K, and half marathon distance race, OCR or otherwise? How do they differ between the distances? That's a really good question. Yeah, um, and we need to do a whole warm-up episode too. But Mm -hmm. 
I will say, and I think our philosophies are the same. First of all, the shorter the race, the more and higher intense your warm-up should be. Uh, the longer the race, uh, the warm-up doesn't necessarily need to be as long or as intense. Um, if it's a sprint or a stadium race or a 5K or less, you should be hitting like, don't be afraid to put in 10, 15, 20 minutes on feet with some dynamic movements, really get sweating, get that heart rate up. So that pace and effort out of the gun doesn't catch you off guard. That's the biggest mistake people make is suddenly they're not ready for the effort that's coming up because they didn't warm up that system. So short races, uh, longer, more intense warm up, long races, uh, still a warm up, still thorough, but it doesn't need to be as intense or dynamic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep it brief there. If you watch a road race or track race and you watch 20 athletes, you're going to see one or two workout warm-up styles. If you watch OCR and you watch 20 athletes, you're going to see 10 to 12 different warm-ups. And that's because there's we have so many different factors in our race. And so my advice will be treat this like you would treat your training. The training is designed to prep you for the specific demands of the race and the warm-up should do the same. So start global. Start with jogging and dynamic warm-ups and then progress towards specific things you're about to use in the race. And that is speed and that is multi-dimensional body movement. And so do specific warm-ups that are going to prime those exact things. The faster the race, the faster your accelerations need to be beforehand. The more intense the race, the more intense your overall dynamic warm-up should be. But practice it now during your workouts. Dial it in so that you know exactly what you're going to do on race day. And studies show folks, that static stretching before a tough event is a mistake. Sitting there and overstretching a hamstring stretch for minutes, trying to do like a glute stretch, a line glute stretch for minutes, you're actually taking some of the pop and efficiency and the elasticity out of that leg, which helps them fire uh, more explosively. So you don't want to be doing statics, a lot of static stretching before a race. You want to be doing dynamic warm-up drills. We can cover all that stuff in a long episode, but static stretching is not your friend. Uh, before a race, at least heavy static stretch. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm in a hundred percent agreement on that, and also agree that as we get closer to races, we will have race warm up episodes. Episode yep. singular. Uh, episode. Uh, Girl Jameson says favorite running shoe for five mile routes. Not a crazy runner, but enjoy it. I think we uh, we covered that mostly in our shoe talk already, so we can move on. Um, next one is from Caleb eight eight three three. He says calorie intake for endurance athlete. How should I account for calories burned while running and training? Well, you can have a fitness tracker that does that. You can get an app where you import everything you do, or you can go by feel. And I don't think there's a wrong way. It's whichever one works for you. And that sounds like such a cop-out, but it's true. My take on all things nutrition is that the overriding like limiter on your nutritional plan has to be stress. That sometimes... A lesser scientifically correct plan is healthier for you if it doesn't cause stress and mental hangups. And sometimes a perfect plan causes less stress because you're not stressed about doing things wrong. Sometimes a bad plan that gives you freedom mentally to get better over time. And so it's finding your comfort zone. And I don't think I'm going to get more specific than that, Kirk. Yeah, I think if you're feeling drained more often than not, you're probably eating too little. Um, and if the scale's going up, you're eating too much. I think, I, I mean, for the most part, I think it's that simple. Um, if you're not feeling tapped every day, then you're probably doing a good job. Uh, that's so tough to say. So, and, and honestly, some people, some people eat way less than others and feel great. And some people need to eat a ton to feel great. 
Um, it's kind of bizarre that way people's bodies and metabolisms are just different. So um, watch the scale if you're someone who tends to gain weight. Otherwise, just let how you feel in general, especially on those quality days dictate. If you feel good, keep doing what you're doing. That's all yeah. I got to say. And you can always do a test week. You can always do two weeks where you say, I'm going to eat anytime I'm hungry until I feel sated. And you watch what the scale does with that. And then you adjust accordingly. Yep. Speaking of eating, should I eat nutrition during my long runs? What's the deal with glycogen depletion and fat adaptation? <laughs> the deal is out there. The truth is out there. You need to find the it. Google that. However, we will say that eating nutrition during long runs should and shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen on your runs 90 minutes or less because you want to get used to doing that. And you can even go and fast it into those. It should happen on days that you're going long and you want to test out your nutrition, how your body reacts, both in a negative way and in a positive way. Yeah. And on those long runs over 90 minutes, it doesn't mean you wait till 90 minute mark to start your nutrition you get ahead of it then and you start taking nutrition every half hour, 45 minutes at the very sparse end of things. But uh, you're starting nutrition early in that run then so that you don't bonk later. Um, that'd be my advice there. As far as fat adaptation goes, ketogenic diet and all that, that's such a wormhole to go down and it needs to be done so properly. Um, uh, supposedly you can be a fat adapted athlete and go hours and hours and hours without needing food because your body's fat stores turn into one big buffet for your body as you're running. But um, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that. So I wish I could dive in more, but I, I just don't, I don't, I'm not confident enough yeah. in speaking knowledgeably about it. Science aside, I look at my runs as type A or type B. Type A is teaching myself to work without calories and type B is practicing my race nutrition. And that is exactly the way I do it. Yeah, I think we covered that. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I had another question. I just don't want this person to feel left out. C Colvin O2, what is the best weekly meal plan? Uh, I think we just kind of covered a little bit of that and everything we talked about. That's that's another one like we talk about. Now's the time to hire a coach. Well, if you really, really want nutrition help, you find someone who that's their job. Yeah, yeah. Um, Next question from account called VJ Shoes USA. I got one from them too. Mine says, and this is something I'm very passionate about. I deal with it constantly. All it says is shin splints, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. That makes more sense because my message said something. I think it was an autocorrect. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. So I'm glad you got something. Um, shin splints have been, uh, not to use another body part reference, but my Achilles heel. Uh, shin splints. I think I've had six stress fractures in my left tibia over the years, maybe seven or eight. I don't even know. I am constantly nursing shin splints in my left shin. It is my, that is my weakness right there. That is the bane to my running existence. It's what dictates how much volume I can handle. Um, with shin splints, I will tell you the biggest key with shin splints, and I wish I wasn't such an expert on them, but I am. Um, you cannot get behind them. As soon as you get behind them and you you're like, oh, they're sore today, but I really want to get my run in. And then you run on it. And then they're even more sore the next day where like you're starting to feel them out of bed in the morning or when you're walking around. You are so screwed, man. Like you need to keep them in check. As soon as those shins flare up, taking one to two days off now is better than taking six to eight weeks off later because you had to get your run in that day. If I could tell you anything, I'm so passionate about this and I've had to practice it so much. It is when as soon as those shins act up, take two to three days off of running and do not get to the point where you're running on sore shins or just riding that line because it's going to end up right where you don't want it to. And you're going to be sidelined for two months. I promise you. So as soon as they act up, 
swallow your pride, recheck your training plan and take a couple extra days off. And if they're sore again, when you run three days later, take another three days off until you can run consecutive days without them bothering you at all. Um, that's a dangerous one. That's my take on that. I have nothing to argue with about that, but I'm going to roll it together with my next question, which was uh, plantar fascia. Same okay. exact thing. You cannot get behind the eight ball on these things. Your recovery protocol, your prevention protocol, your taking time off has to be done upfront because once okay. you're behind, it literally can be with you for life and you just don't want to have that happen. And so finding more cushion shoes, finding the correct cushion shoes, making sure you're not slapping the ground or digging into it so that you're landing underneath yourself softly and moving forward, staying off concrete, staying off downhills, staying off uphills, whatever's causing it, those things need to be in place early and often. Yep, yeah, and uh, the best treatment I've found, so a treatment that completely fixed my plantar fasciitis, which I had really one season real bad, and then my shin splints is uh, something called uh, ESWT or shockwave therapy. Um, if you're in a bigger city, there should be a therapist who has this. Again, shockwave therapy or ESWT. Um, it has saved me. It's basically a small bullet in the end of a, a little bit of like a therapeutic gun. And it's like somebody knocking a hammer on your shin, uh, which is very painful. But what it does is it, it creates inflammation, creates blood flow to help recover that tissue. That tissue does not get a lot of blood flow. That's why they shin splints linger forever. They can't heal themselves well because of restricted blood flow. Plantar fasciitis, very little blood flow in the fascia down there. And so shockwave therapy helps increase blood flow, helps break up that fascia and helps let it heal itself. So if you struggle with those things, seek out a shockwave therapist if you can. For me, it's been it's been a game changer. So that's my two cents on that. I like it. Is it possible to focus on Spartan racing while still running track and cross country? Yes. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, hundred percent. I think uh, I think varying your training for Spartan racing yeah. uh, or OCR translates to just steady running. And just know that you'll never be your best at them both at the same time. You have to have one as your base building for the other, and that's pretty much it. That is it. Um, they can each complement each other, I think, though, nicely. Yep. Yeah. And you could also do both and try to dabble and then do like a two to four week sort of peak where you're very specific into one or the other. And I think you could hit close to your potential in one or the other if you just periodize that last month of your training. If you have a big event, either a pure running event or a pure OCR event, I think you could do that too. Yeah. I, I think you could probably get pretty close. Yeah. Um, from E. Thorson, 18. Uh, if any, what is a milestone that needs to be achieved to say that one is a legit competitor in OCR? <laughs> what do you say to that one? Uh, you need a world title. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I get it. I believe that's Eric. Eric, I get it. Um, uh -huh. but milestones are so personal. A legit competitor is someone who goes out there and legitimately com competes against their peers. That's it. Every single person has different levels of success. I would say if you want to monitor improvement in OCR, guys, you just need to do percentage behind the winner that you are. Yep. If your percentage, if you are closer and closer in percentage of time behind the winner, that means you're getting better relatively. Um, time doesn't matter. Placement almost doesn't matter. Uh, how close were you to the winner? And are you closer this race than you were last race? If you're, if you're percentage-wise getting better, um, that's a good indicator of where you're at. That's how I tell people to perform. Yeah, exactly. Place is getting really tricky. Um, I firmly believe that top 10 now is what top three was uh, six, eight years ago. Oh, that, yeah. And at Worlds, top 20 now is what top 10, top five used to be. 
It's just mm-hmm. not the same sport. And and luckily our sport really rewards running hard all the way through the finish because no lead is safe because of penalties. And so your time behind or your percentage behind the winner is always a safe bet. Good call yeah. on that, Kirk. Yeah, buddy. Speaking of good call, this is this is a tough one in our sports. What do you think about weight vest training or running? Oh, for running, pros and cons of it. Mm, I'm a fan we, of the weight. We talked vest. about this. Yeah, I'm a fan of the weight vest. I wear mine for all my strength workouts. For one, just to add an extra ten or twenty pounds to what I'm doing. But um, so I like it for that application, dynamic movements, all that. As far as running goes, um, uphill treadmill work, uh, fantastic. Power hiking work, fantastic. Uh, uphill running even it can be fantastic uh you got to be careful with the flat running the way it can change your gait and the pounding um load it can be done in all applications though i think you need to ease into it very much so um 10 pound weight vest might not seem like a lot but it is and it adds up over time so i would say the safest place to start is incline work yep i agree completely i personally don't use it for flat or downhill I know people who do, so I won't say it doesn't work, but I don't recommend it. Um, to do it, you have to do it so well and so, so intentionally. And you also have to have some genetic disposition towards that. You have people like Hobie Call who just respond to it and their body doesn't break down under it. Uh, mm-hmm. Not everyone's like that. So yeah, functional work, uphill, yes. Anything beyond that, do at your own risk. Yep. Um Active Capture says, will you interview Georgie Lai on the podcast, Inspiring Dude? I don't know who that is. Do you know who that is? I do not either. I it said Inspiring Dude. I looked up Georgie Lai on Instagram. I found some sexy fitness girl models. So I don't think that's who they're talking about. Maybe they misspelled it. You get back to us with either confirmation that his name is Georgie or an updated spelling. And then we will give you an answer on if we're going to reach out to said inspiring dude or not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyways, uh, we'll TVD there. Um, Jonathan Slaughter says, and we're getting down there. We don't have as many questions left. So hang on with this audience here. Um, Can you give any running advice for asthmatics? There is little info on this subject. Well, you're listening to an asthmatic who uh, is also a runner. That's me. Um, So I'm happy to take the reins on this one. Um, I will tell you that this may seem contradictory, but asthmatics do much better with endurance events that work at a lower capacity of their maximal uh, potential. So, um, this may seem silly, but an asthmatic should not be doing like 200 meter, 400 meter, 800 meter. Asthmatics do much better when they're working at submaximal effort for a longer time. You're much less likely to go into an asthmatic state when you're working at less percentage of your max. So, um, for me, short, hard, fast interval work where I'm going really, I'm working lactate threshold. I'm working like some really, really intense stuff um, will trigger my asthma sometimes, but uh, threshold work, long duration stuff does not trigger me. Um, So you may want to focus on longer events, uh, Jonathan Slaughter. You, that may actually negate your symptoms. Um, So if you're trying to run fast miles and stuff and you're getting frustrated, maybe you need to look at 5k, 10k, half marathon, longer stuff. Uh, most asthmatics do better with that. And you seem to always, uh, have bigger issues with, um, with some of the changes in seasons and with your allergies. Spring crushes me. Yeah. Spring uh, in particular, this time the snow mold, when that stuff melts, uh, I can, I can mean, it can really affect me, but yeah, not, not, we don't need to talk about that, but anyways, longer efforts tend to do better with uh, asthmatics. Yep. I'm of pure blood. I don't have issues with that, so I can't add. Uh, lucky. Uh, you're still pristine. All right. Let's see here. What kind – this is a good question. Structure, progression, workout. 
structure slash progression slash workout should I use for practicing technical terrain? I have a one sentence answer. Do everything you normally do except on technical terrain. Try intervals, try threshold work, try easy runs. Do it on that terrain. See how that works for you. Yeah, for a race, you should do you should do all of your, especially some quality efforts once in a while on the terrain that you're going to race on. So um, hit it, hit it up, right? Yeah. yeah. Here's I'm going to throw one more in here because it's another short answer because I don't think we're going to dive into this, but we maybe will later with an expert on the show. Uh, I haven't discussed any of this with Kirk, so. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, Kirk. OCR weight, ideal weight for OCR runners, maybe broken down by race type and distance. Mm. It's a wormhole. Oh, a, a worm, can yeah. of worms, <laughs> not a wormhole. No, um, wait, you could do a rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. Rabbit it, hole. It's black hole. I'm not going to play an armchair weight specialist, but I will recommend you to my favorite running author, Matt Fitzgerald, who has a book called Racing Weight. Read that book and we will have a specialist on at some point on this show and we will talk about that. Our sport is luckily the maybe one endurance sport in the world that allows multiple body types and weights for success. We have Atkins, we have Hunter, we have VJ, we have Luna Lima, we have Kirk, myself. Like we all have a different body, a different race weight, and it's all successful. It's not like a marathon where you have to be below 5% body fat as a man or you are obese, you know, at yeah. the at the pro level. It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Our sport is much more forgiving. Yeah, I, I think we should leave it at that. Um, this next one uh, well, says healthy body by science as warmups and cool downs. We covered that enough. We'll cover that in depth later. Um, next question, uh, snitker.derek. Derek Snitker. I know Derek. Yeah, I want to say thank you to this gentleman because uh, you wrote us a very nice review on, on Apple Podcasts last week. Um, I do read all of them, and yours is the most recent one to come in. You're very complimentary. Do you know Derek in real life? I do not know Derek in real life, but he left a really nice review and it uh, it made my day. So do you know Derek in real life? I do. He's uh, he's buddies with John DeWitt and Kenny Halloran. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. Kenny. I don't know if he went to UO like you guys, but uh, he's part of that crowd. Really, really good guy. He's a teacher and a coach and uh, at, at a high school level and just solid stand-up dude. So thanks, Derek. In his review, he said that we need to get some sponsored backing and make some money doing this because we shouldn't be putting out this content for free, he said. Racks on racks on racks. Yeah. So anyways, uh, Derek says, what five or 10 pieces of fitness equipment are must haves or highly recommended? My, I'm assuming we're talking for runners or obstacle racers. Uh, number one, this is controversial, but I'm going to say a treadmill. Oh, I can't argue with that at all. It, it, it shouldn't be 100% of what you do, but you can't have a better tool for fitting in a workout with the least amount of time and stress necessary, and you can control it 100%. So treadmill, number one. Incline trainer, if possible. Yeah, I think treadmills most the best application is for incline work. Um, if we're going to stay on the cardio piece of equipment, if I could pick one more, I would pick the assault bike uh, for cross training. I just the way it works, it's compact. It can get in your house um, without taking up too much room. I like the assault bike. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say spin bike. All right, there you go. I can just go a on bike my assault of some bike. sort. Yes, a bike of some sort. Um, I would say the most versatile piece of equipment I have in my home. Uh, strength wise is a set of adjustable dumbbells that go up to 60 pounds, spend some money, spend 300 bucks on a nice set of adjustable dumbbells. I have ones by Nordic track. Um, I can get most everything I need to get done with 60 pound dumbbells. Sure. I can go heavier on other movements, but, um, I tell you what, I structure my entire strength workouts around this set of dumbbells right now. Cause I'm working out from home. It's worth the investment, um, adjustable dumbbells and a doorway pull-up bar. 
Yeah, I was uh, going to say pull-up bar, a solid pull-up. I've had the doorway pull-up bar for years. It's great for pull-ups and chin-ups, but I want something anchored in so I can do some OCR stuff. Yeah, that'd be nice. I got oh, yeah, enough. Pull-up bar of some sort. Yeah, anything else that uh, comes to mind? My take is after that, you're getting into personal preference now. I'd love to have a power rack with weights, but that's if you if you structure your workouts around that. A rower is fantastic, but it's supplemental. I think if you have something to run on, something to bike or do high intensity work on, something to lift like dumbbells, and then you also have something to pull and chin on, you're pretty much all the way there. Yep, yeah. Um, maybe you could throw in uh, like a light, medium, and heavy kettlebell in there if, if you want to get fancy and add- And at my fifth, I'll throw in either a tire or a sled. Yeah, sled. Yeah. I'm happy with that. If I have those five things in my life, I could probably do 90 to 95% of my max capacity home training. Yep. Yeah. Heck, honestly, if I had a set of dumb, adjustable dumbbells and a pull-up bar, I'm going to maintain or build all my fitness. Honestly. I would say that if I were trapped, if I were imprisoned in my home with only two things, I would have a pull-up bar and a treadmill. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yep. That'd be it. Question for... <laughs> <laughs> James Ooh, Knight. Definitely. Question for Bracken. With the lack of open barber shops, any tips for rocking the bald look? Are you kidding me? This is the <laughs> easiest haircut to do. Get yourself a razor and shaving cream, which you already have as a man, and get working. I will admit I watched a YouTube video the first time I shaved my head because I was super nervous. So do that. Or you know, FaceTime me and I'll walk you through it. We'll shave our heads together. <laughs> When you realized the shape of your head, what it really looked like the first time you shaved it, was that like a, was that an appalling experience or you knew what you were working with there? Is that a subtle dig at the shape of my head? No, because the I'm fearful to just shave my head based on, I don't know what the heck it's going to look like under there. I, You know what? Side tangent. I had the nicest transition to bald that you could possibly have. In co college, I was working this manual labor job all summer. It was so hot and humid. I just buzzed my head one day down to like a quarter inch. I was tired of of being so sweaty. And then that became my new status quo. And then over the years, it went down to an eighth and then a 16th and a 32nd and then a shave. So it was a natural, I knew what my head shape looked like. Uh, all right. What I don't envy are people who go from full head of hair covered as best as they can for years. And then suddenly like overnight have to go bald. That's a tough look. That's a tough transition. Mm, I don't have much experience there. But Either that or get yourself a buzzer or some balding shears. Balding clippers are the way to get as close as possible to the head as possible without shaving. There you go. <laughs> nice. Uh, can an easy pace be too easy, Kirk? As in nope. not enough to stimulate a reaction in the body? Mm. That is true. You yep. could not stimulate a reaction, but you're still doing skill work. So no, and you're getting blood pumping. I don't think there's such thing as too easy unless all you did was like 15 minute like baby step pace your entire life. Yeah, I would say safe bet, like creep into your, if you pay attention to heart rate, like creep into your zone two a little bit, you're gonna get some aerobic benefit there. If you stayed in low zone two on all your easy and recovery days and nailed your quality days, you would not have an issue whatsoever. Yep, I think we can move on. Um, this is a tough question. I think a lot of people have this one. This is from uh, Louisa Barteldes Fernha. I butchered that, it's long. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I train grip all the time with and without high heart rate, but always fall off the monkey bars. What's up, cat emoji? All right. If your grip training is going well and you feel strong, the only thing that's missing is skill work at that point. Then you just have to get to a playground and do monkey bars and test them out in every condition and skip. Like Spartans go up and down and they're wide. Put yourself in bad positions, but train the actual skill 
sounds like you've got the strength underneath you. Get out there and practice the real deal. Yeah. Um, this conversation came up earlier this week with a buddy of mine, Nick, and he has a hard time with the monkey bars sometimes. And he's not a weak dude. He does his grip work. And he realized what he was doing wrong. And I think a lot of people do this wrong is he's grabbing the monkey bars from straight on when really your technique should be wrapping your wrist over the top of the monkey bar. So when you're climbing the, the monkey bars, your, your wrist should be on like a hook over the top of the monkey bar instead of grabbing the monkey bar, like directly from the side of it or almost kind of underneath it. Some people just make that mistake. You're better off wrapping your hand over the top of the monkey bar. So your wrist is flexed over the bar. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It does, but what really matters to me is this Madison Nick. Yeah, Madison Nick has my my sweat seat cover for my car. <laughs> Nick, I need that. Nick, quit stealing shit. I left it in his car. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I well, need to get yeah. it back. Oh, you guys drove back together from that mountain training day, mountain training day we did, didn't you? Yes, we did. I'll get on him for that. But uh, anyways, when the conditions were poor, he would be failing it, and it's. Because he wasn't wrapping the top of his, I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I'm saying there? Yeah, you that overgrip, like you would do if you were going to try to do a ring muscle up. You got to get Correct. way over the top so that as you rotate and as you slip, you slip back down to a stable position. Correct. So I would get that hook with your wrist over the top of the monkey bars. Try that the next time you're on them. But yeah, Bracken's right. You just got to get on them. Yeah. Yeah. I only have two left. How many do you have? Um, just a few, like maybe four or five. Let All me right. see. You do yeah. two. I'll do one. You do two. I'll do one. Okay. Um, let's see. We got single track Scott again. Uh, like the questions. This one just says two recommendations for lots of concrete training during quarantine. We covered that. I just want to make sure you didn't feel left out there. Let's see. Um, Bay, uh, Baxley Crosby asks, what is the best way to structure your training for high rocks and DecaFit? Do you want to give a quick answer to that? Uh, I actually see them as two different beasts. I see DecaFit as a shorter version of a stadium or a longer version of a, like a, circuit workout but so I'll, I'll, I'll take the high rocks approach i think you need to be a power builder i think you need to be lifting four times a week minimum um probably like a, a split where you're upper one day lower the next take a day or two and then do it again and you have to be hitting a lot of sports specific heavy heavy sled work and all you're running probably is going to be compromised and really focus on your threshold running Threshold running, heavy lifting, lots of functional uh, sled work, and finishing everything. Two of your lifts per week, and one of at least two of your lifts per week, and maybe one of your runs with some sort of uh, Metcon high intensity to just get good at working under load. And that can be thrusters, wall balls, uh, burpees, weighted lunges, that kind of stuff. That's what I would do. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with everything you said. Decavit is more like OCR yeah. running. OCR 400s with DecaFit stations in there, that kind of that kind of jazz. Yeah, um, I'll go to another one. Um, I like this question a lot. A lot of people ask themselves this. Uh, Mama Lone eighteen sixty five says, "Are there metrics you would suggest one meeting before jumping from open to age group?" Now we got the question before about age group to elite, but I don't think we got this question from open to age group. What do you think? Easiest way is to just look at your time compared to them after a race. And if you are not taking last, you're ready for age group. And if you are in the top 50%, you are 100% ready. So look at that. And and I, I don't even think I need to get more specific than just look at the time results and see if you're ready. Exactly. Compare your time to uh, where you would have fallen in the competitive age uh, age group. And um, I would say if you're ahead of if you're ahead of 25% of the finishers. 
uh, you 100% are ready to jump in. Yeah. Uh, because that competition should even bring more out of you, I would I would imagine. So you'd be ready. Um, and it's okay to test yourself that way. So I would just say compare. Shoulder pain while running. Does anyone ever get shoulder pain when running before? What does that mean? Um, Who asked that question? Let me pull this up here. That was Patrick Chavez. Oh, okay, not not the same uh, person who has something similar. Uh, one time in my life, I had like debilitating shoulder pain. It was the first time I did a long race. I did a 22-mile trail race, and I had never run longer than 16 in my life and probably hadn't within a few years. And I got to the finish line. I put my arms down, and the front of my shoulders were just like on fire. And that was just a muscular fatigue and probably holding way too much tension in my shoulders and clenching when I was fighting in the second half of the race. Outside of that, I've never had it. Um, so I've had it. I had it in college a bit. It feels like a knife. It feels like you're being stabbed, almost like a side cramp would. Yeah. Um, it actually is sharp, the shoulder pain they're talking about. Um, what the heck causes it? I heard a theory where when you start to breathe and you get labored, sometimes you know, you're not fully exchanging oxygen in and out of your lungs and it can be trapped oxygen in there that's not recirculating putting pressure on a nerve and yeah i mean this i don't have no idea what the merit is to it i also don't know how to fix it it was a phase i went through then i went away i would say good luck i don't know i don't know what it is i but i know the feeling and it's bizarre i would say if it is only happening after long efforts it's fatigue and tension if it's during short efforts then work on your breathing and again your relaxation of your arms but i would say you have a better chance of curing it during the long runs with fitness improvements rather than short runs because it could be a bit of a crapshoot so do you have an answer to this this is why i asked who asked that question um team movison ocr says uh why do my arms fall asleep on long runs I've never heard of that in my life. I, I, I'd I'm going to Google this when we finish it because I'm curious to know, like, is this a thing? I've heard my fingers have fallen asleep in hands during bike rides, but mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there's an impingement somewhere. <laughs> there's some yeah. lack of blood flow, maybe some mobility work. I don't know. It's nerve an impingement. Damage? It's probably nerve related uh, more than blood flow. Um, and I would guess it has to do with tension over time. Like when you're running, if you're engaging your traps and keeping your shoulders up and you're a little tight over time, I think it's, it's causing something there. I would say, try to relax as much as you can shake out your arms early and often in your runs and see if that helps. But I need to look into that too. If anybody has an answer for the, uh, shoulder pain or the arms falling asleep message us. Yeah. That's an intriguing one. Training through sickness. How, what, when? I don't want to give too much advice on this because I'm not a medical professional, but what I do for myself is I train through most things. I don't get sick very often. And when I do, I tend to heal quicker when I'm working out. Um, within reason, if I have the stomach flu, I'm not working out, but colds, um, even the like head flu, um, I don't know. I just, most things I work out through. And until the moment I know I just need to be in bed, I kind of, I'm one or the other, I'm in bed resting or I can work out. I don't have really have a middle ground. Um, the fever, fever is a surefire way to not work out. Or yeah. if you do, God, put on some sweatpants and sweatshirt and go for a walk just to, I don't know, sweat a little, but uh, fever is the only thing. Otherwise it's a day by day basis. I work out through things too. I hate to say it. I usually dial back intensity. Uh, sometimes I'll just skip the quality efforts if I know it's going to zap my tank too much, but I'm a, I'm a worker outer through sickness too. Yeah. Yeah. High, high yeah. fever is the thing you don't mess with. Yeah. Yeah. 
I only have one question left. How well does bike ascending, meaning going uphill, cross over to running up mountains, both long and sub aerobic threshold? Um, very well. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but again, look at the Mount Marathon results. Solid and the Pike Peaks ascent. Really good bikers can run uphill for the most part. Yeah, good uh, good uh, uphill runners tend to be uh, frequent bikers. So flat or uphill biking, I think is, you can't go wrong. It's only going to benefit the way, it's, especially the way it stresses those quads and the glutes when you're really hustling. It's just such a great translator. It really is. So, I mean, do more, as much of it as you can within reason. A lot of guys right now are out biking a lot of mountains. I'm, I'm noticing. As Someone got a keep... new bike this week. Who's that? Oh, you. This Did guy. I see that? It's uh, let's talk. Let's new is a relative. No, no, no. I ordered a new bike. Oh, I thought you were using an old school. One. I was. Oh, it's not here yet, but uh, I can't trust that thing yet until there's a lot of work done to it. So, got myself a new road bike. What is it? Felt FR30. Nice. Sweet. What kind of components does it have? It's on got it? 105 group set. There you go. That's not bad. That's that the poor man's race group set. It's going to last forever. It works just great, but uh, it's not costing me thousands of dollars. You don't need anything more than that unless you're $1,600 bike. Got it for $699. Wow. You are a bargain shopper. You should be proud. But, you know, I do what I can. I dabble. A nice I'm a job. researcher, Kirk. I'm a researcher. Are you? I'm an impulse buyer. I like impulse buying, but I only impulse buy things that I have researched like in the past before. Oh, that's not impulse buying. Impulse is I um, see it, I buy it. <laughs> doesn't matter. I've researched it in the past. Suddenly it's there. The deal's there. Snap it up. All right. You know what's good is I thought this would take us two hours, and I think we're going to be under that. Um, so I have a few more here that I just want to get to. Um, Pactus Chavez asks, is running three miles a day frowned upon? I know you talked about periodization as well. No, it's not frowned upon. We'd have to dive into efforts going on there and what you're doing. Uh, not frowned upon at all. Run three miles a day. That's great if that's what you got in your tank right now. But uh, don't go running hard every day. That's all I got. I'm going to frown at you, Patrick. Don't you be out there running each day? Yeah. What do you think this is? A foot race? <laughs> Training every day? Jeez. Um, another one from a new follower of ours. Uh, she sent us a message. Uh and to, I think she's from Germany too. Um, do you notice we got some listeners from overseas? Quite a few now. Yeah, it's starting yeah, to ramp yeah. up. Yeah, it is. Uh, Antegrin.athlete. Is it possible to train for Spartan Championship in the mountains living in a super flat area? Um, yep, we're trying to do it. I'm doing it constantly. Kirk it was is. just 11th in the world living in the Midwest. Dang it. I look back. I was curious. I think I was in eighth at one point and I slipped a little bit back to 11th. Yeah. Freaking crap. You were you were solid 9-10 a lot of the race. I got passed by Johnny Luna Lima going downhill after the swim. and That's uh, embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and uh, who else passed me going downhill? What's uh, Albert, Albert Soleil? Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't get my freaking body to work after that swim. I wasn't the same downhill runner I normally was, and I got I lost my positions there. You know, anyway. there's two things about Albert. First is that that man is one of the underrated in the sports. He is an, he's a little animal. I've been watching a whole lot of European OCR on the uh, trainer recently. And the second is he is a, he's a bigger guy since he's short, he can just have more mass on him. So he's going to handle the water a little bit better than some people. Maybe I didn't get, I haven't got passed on a downhill in my last two, three seasons of OCR, except at worlds when my body just freaking yeah. stopped responding anyways. Okay. Um, yes, you can train treadmill incline trainer, your best friend there. Um, this one's from Scott Zanini. Um, and I like this question. I want you to answer. And this I like here. Scott. Yeah. I think you got an opinion on this. Do I increasing miles? Do I add to number of days you run or hold the same number of days and increase the mileage of existing? Depends how many days you have. 
if you have less than five, the next thing in my opinion to do is increase a day. Keep it short, uh, increase, it'll be your shortest day and then increase your volume overall and then add another day. Yeah, that's fair. There's no really, as long as you're you're methodical with it, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. Just no. be smart, yeah. be slow, don't make big jumps. And then I got four questions from the same brother, uh, Luca Lorenzo. Oh. Uh, at L- Lorenzoni, who is, uh, he's a good dude. He's, uh, he trained with you for a while, didn't he? Yeah, and Serena. And Serena's wife. Yeah, they're uh, both good people. And the one I definitely wanted to uh, answer was, what do you think about training fasted? He had a few, which we kind of covered a little bit through other questions, but the one we didn't. What do you think about training fasted? Uh, I like it. I'm not one of those huge, like, to go on extended fasting sessions, but I do 80% of my runs in the morning without eating. And so I like it. I think it's good for you. Do you do quality work fasted? I do. I've even raced fasted. Um, just meaning wake up and race without eating. It's not like I'm fasting for it. But my big days, I like to do the things I'm going to do on my races. And so I wake up and have my my race day breakfast and that whole routine. What is your race day breakfast? So, uh, well, so it's, generally, it's what's for dinner the night before. It's what oh, I really? I, oh. Yeah, I, I, tra- I literally train myself to endure the hardships of road traveling. So okay. before I'll, I'd say before the majority of my big workouts, I eat whatever is left over so that no matter what happens on the road, I know I can handle it. So if you had chicken and rice for dinner, you're having chicken and rice for breakfast? If if I have to, yeah. yeah. I think that's, I don't think a lot of people are doing that. I think that's- a I know, Not every time, but at least half of my workouts are done off the night before his dinner. I don't like to leave things like that to chance. If something oh. like that happens outside your control and it throws off your whole day, well, what was the point of all the training you just put in? for a little factor like that to throw you off. So I do half my workouts probably off my ideal breakfast or whatever I have planned for the day. And the other half I do, I'm like, all right, I'm eating this for breakfast tomorrow. And we're going to see how my body does. I'm a giant bowl or two of cereal and almond milk. You can travel anywhere, get almond milk that's shelf stable, buy a box of cereal at a grocery store. I got a certain t- kinds I go. They always work. Put a cup of coffee down the hatch or some Enduralead afterwards. You're freaking ready to go. There you go. Yeah, I do fasted. Um, and that's a safe bet, but I do fasted. Uh, cardio, if it's not a workout I that I need a certain result from. So I think steady recovery, easy work, um, totally cool. Do it. Sometimes there's some studies that show morning fast and stuff can dip into those fat stores. If you're trying to, you know, watch that a little bit, uh, no problem. I think it's great. I won probably in the last three years, the best race I had, I actually didn't eat breakfast that morning. Why may I ask? Um, because that's what I was doing at the time in workouts. I hadn't been doing, um, with, with the sleep I was getting, I was sleeping in, I was getting terrible sleep at night. So I'll sleep until the last possible, possible moment, getting up, getting my warm up, and doing it. And it was a stadium race. It was going to be high intensity and I was going to be nauseous during the race. And I didn't want something foreign in my stomach that I didn't trust. I'd probably gone nine or 10 weeks without breakfast before I run. And so I just didn't risk it. And are you having caffeine before you race? Any stimulant in you? Perform Elite? I did Perform Elite, um, and that was it. On an empty stomach, no calories. But I've been doing that for nine to 11 weeks. And you still felt good during the race? As good as you can feel during a a 25-minute max effort race. I finished strong. I I had a good second half. But it wasn't an experiment. That was the last time anyone beat Hunter in a short course. Ooh. Humble brag that wasn't humble. No, I mean, he (laughs) he got hurt that day. Yeah, sure, sure. Behind me. 
All right. I don't uh, I don't have anything else that we need to get to. I might have missed something in there if I missed your question. I'm sorry, but that's everything I think I got. Yeah, this this was good, I think. And it told me that we need to do this more frequently because we got almost two hours of questions. I think if we do it twice as frequently, we can do hour long episode. Maybe once a month we can shoot this out here. And a lot of these are good questions and even Very talking through them myself are good reminders. And so, um, and no, now we no have questions. six topics moving forward for future episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to write those, write those in. Listen, Kirk and I love talking running. Uh, I, I'm building our website right now and in our backstory, how we got started on the about us is like a story of how we got started. Kirk and I talked, talked to each other on the phone couple times a week. And finally, we just said we should be recording this. Someone's got to want to hear this because like, we love talking about this. We're going to talk about this no matter what. So yep. the process is its own reward to us. But when people tell us that they like it, like it's, it makes it all worth it. When, when you guys ask questions, when you're invested in this, when you give feedback, write reviews, ask questions and take our answers seriously, even if you don't agree with them, like take the time to listen to it. That is just it's really big for us. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to not only listen to it, but to be invested in what we're saying enough to ask more questions and hear our thoughts on it. Yeah. Thank you guys. And two, two quick things. Um, you guys are great about asking training nutrition questions. Feel free to shoot over who you want us to interview, who excites you, uh, that you want to hear from. There's a lot of names we can talk to, uh, Bracken and I are just kind of mowing over who we want to interview next. Uh, and of course, there's a dozen or two names in the list. But if we start getting somebody who you guys want to hear from and we see it pop up a number of times, we're going to reach out to them. And then also, uh, Bracken and I talked about doing a uh, get to know your host episode. If you guys want to hear a little bit more about Bracken's background and his story or my background and my story, we were thinking about letting you guys get to know us a little bit by uh, some of our Friday interviews uh, doing a get to know your host. So if you want to hear that, let us know as well. We don't want it to fall on deaf ears, but we realized uh, you guys don't know us terribly well beyond our banter. So let us know. Enjoy the quarantine. Get some training in there and keep those questions pouring in, ladies and gents. See you guys. Thank you.